If our Bibles are open this morning to Deuteronomy in the 10th chapter today, <clears throat> if you need a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, and you'll find our text on page 145. We are continuing in our series, even on baptism celebration, in the book of Deuteronomy, and today we're jumping ahead just a little bit uh, to the 10th chapter, and we're asking and answering this question that we shall see here in just a moment in the text itself, and the question is this, what does the Lord require of you? Understanding expectations, I think, is a very helpful thing. Have you all ever been hired for a job only to start the job unsure of what it was you were actually supposed to be doing? Uh, that's a very helpless feeling and a very frustrating feeling. Or maybe you were a student at one point, or maybe our student today, and you're preparing for an exam, but you've got a scatterbrained professor, and you're not exactly sure what it is you're actually supposed to be studying. You're not sure what's going to appear on the examination. Very, very frustrating. Many people have that same frustration <clears throat> of not fully understanding what the expectations are as it relates to their own spiritual journey. The Bible makes it very clear uh, that part of the reason that we're here, and certainly the majority reason why we're here as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to bring honor and glory to Him. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, so we make it our goal to please Christ, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Many people say, well, I got it, preacher. I know I'm supposed to please Christ. I'm just not sure how to do that. I'm just not sure how that's accomplished. Well, I have a feeling based on the text that we're preparing to read this morning that this second generation of the children of Israel, post-Exodus second generation, maybe have been struggling with the same thing. They knew they belonged to God. Uh, they knew they were the people of God. But uh, as was the case with the first generation, they weren't quite sure how to live in ways that were pleasing to God. And so here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses asked a very critical, important question to them that gets to the heart of that issue. And I think it's a critically important question for every single one of us, even today as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, where Moses asked the question in Deuteronomy 10, 12, and now what does the Lord require of you? And his answer to that question pretty well sets the stage for our baptism celebration today which is really more an emphasis on obedience than it is anything else. Let's take a look at the passage before we continue this morning, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. We'll read down this morning through verse 17. Let's honor the sacred reading of the Word of God by standing in His wonderful presence today. The Word will be on the screen if you need it. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, <clears throat> to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. And yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you 
above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and who takes no bribe. Father, this morning we're thankful to be able to know you as God. We thank you that even though you are so large as to create the universe, the heavens, the earth, and everything in it, you are not too big to take notice of us, your creation. In fact, we are the greatest of all creation, that which is most special to you, created in the image of God. Help us, therefore, understanding this, know what is required of us because of the gracious gifts of God in our lives. What does the Lord require of us as the people of God? May we know it, and then may we do it so that you may be glorified through us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, Hillcrest. Y'all can be seated. Now, this is an important passage. This is a really good passage in Deuteronomy for two reasons. Because it speaks to both the identity of the people of God. Say that with me, identity. And then secondly, it speaks to the responsibility of the people of God. Say that with me, responsibility. That's right, identity and responsibility particularly as to Israel in the Old Testament, but everything that Moses says to them applies still to us as followers of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. With respect to their identity, uh, of course, you should know that Israel was the covenant and is the covenant people of God uh, for reasons that had nothing to do with them. In other words, God didn't engage them in a covenant because of who they were, because of the special things that they did uh, for him, It didn't have anything to do with them. It had everything to do with God's sovereignty, God's sovereign choice, God's election of them as a people. It had everything, in short, it had everything to do with God's grace. Amen. God had chosen them. And Moses reminds them of that in this passage. Did you know it? God set his love on you. That's an action of God according to his sovereign grace. God set his love on, your, on uh, their fathers. And then Moses says, God has chosen you, their offspring, as people belonging to him. In fact, let me show you a passage that occurs just three chapters earlier in Deuteronomy 7. We'll be coming back in a few weeks to this passage of Scripture. But let me give you a foreshadowing of it. This is Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse number 6. Here's what it says. For you, Israel, are a people, what? Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has what? Chosen you to be a people for his what? Treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest. Of all people. In fact, I might add parenthetically, they weren't even a people until God made them a people, right? Uh, and then he says in verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Now, that, brothers and sisters, is the identity part. That's the identity of Israel as the people of God chosen 
by God's sovereign grace alone. Now, when we arrive here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, where we are this morning, Moses reminds us of the expectations of God's people. That's the responsibility part. Having reminded his people who they were as the people of God, Moses now begins our section in chapter 10, verse 12, by saying these two words, and now. With this understanding of who you are, how you got to be, where you came from, and God's divine design in all of that, and uh, now, he asks this critically important question, what does the Lord require of you? And Moses wastes no time in answering that question with five rapid-fire statements that I'm going to summarize in four broad categories. These are the responsibilities then and now of those who are the people of God. we got to run through these quick. Y'all ready to listen fast? Say amen. The first requirement, this expectation of God, so there's no wishy-washiness of who you are or how you're supposed to live, what you're supposed to be doing as followers of God. First requirement, Moses says, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart calls the fear of God the most important orienting truth in the world. In other words, <clears throat> the fear of God, when you have a proper understanding of what it means biblically to live in the fear of God, that will act as a calibration device in your life to make sure that your life is not only pointed true north, but to make sure that you're walking true north. You know what the problem is in America and the world today? We have lost a fear of God. That's why we're jacked up. And until we get that back, nothing will ever change. You know what the problem is in the American church today is? The church has lost a fear of God. And the church will never be effective as the church unless it recaptures this all-important calibration device, which is the fear of God. Man, a proper understanding of the fear of God and living it, that's the foundation for how you think, how you respond, the choices you make, what you believe, what you do. There is the reason in the book of Proverbs, right at the outset of the Proverbs, what does Solomon say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is impossible to live in the knowledge of Scripture and to walk wisely before God apart from having a healthy fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of of wisdom. Now, let me just say real briefly today, the fear of God is not some holy terror that causes you to dive under the pew and to dive under the kitchen table or whatever because you're afraid of God. The believer, for, for the believer, the fear of God is this awesome respect and devotion unto God, which is rooted in a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God and the justice of God and the character of God. Of God. When you live in the fear of God, you live in such a way that you realize your life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And that there is accountability unto God for the decisions that I make with my life. 
the choices that I make, the directions that I go. My life is not my own. I've been purchased by the blood of Christ, the Son of God, and I'm accountable to a holy God before whom I will one day stand at the judgment. And so here's the thing about fearing God. To fear God is not so much to be afraid of him as it is to be afraid of the consequences of disobeying him. Everybody with me say amen. That's the fear of God. What causes me to shimmy and shake and to shudder is that thought of one day having to stand before him to give an account of my entire life. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may give an account of the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So that's the fear of God. It's the fear of the consequences of disobedience. And it's the fear of God that motivated, for example, those Hebrew midwives. Why didn't they snuff out the lives of all those babies that were being born? Because they feared God more than they feared man. It's what motivated Rahab the prostitute to take those Hebrew spies in. She had developed a healthy fear of God. It was the fear of God that inspired Daniel to go to the lion's den, the Hebrew three to go to the fiery furnace. It emboldened the lives of the biblical prophets. And it was the fear of God that emboldened and encouraged the life of the apostle Paul in the midst of all of that persecution and difficulty. And the motivating and constraining fear of God is the first thing that the Lord requires of his people. What does the Lord require of you? Fear the Lord. Another requirement is to love the Lord. And one springs from the other, doesn't it? Jesus, in fact, in the New Testament, quotes from Moses right here in this very book. When he says, in answer to the question, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said it, didn't he? Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's something that is a right response to the understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. In fact, the apostle John says it in 1 John, we love because he, what? First loved us, that's right. Loving God means living in a way that's totally devoted to God. See, the only way to know somebody loves God is by observing how they live. It's by observing what they consider important and what they consider trivial. Are you living in a way that demonstrates you're totally devoted to God? You have no other gods before God? You live in a way that uh, demonstrates total allegiance to him, absolute priority, seek first the kingdom of God, in his righteousness, that's how you tell if a person genuinely loves God. They live with a kingdom priority that affects and infects in a positive way every nook and cranny of their life. What does the Lord require of you? Fear the Lord, love the Lord. Third, Moses says, serve the Lord. This is very familiar language that's repeated here. Uh, David, for example, or the psalmist, we're not sure it was David who wrote Psalm 100 actually, but whoever wrote it makes it very clear when they say, serve the Lord with gladness, right? And that's what basically what Moses is saying here. Serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your what? <clears throat> with all your soul. So the same criteria 
that the Bible applies to how we're to love God. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Same language is applied to our serving the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Serving is more overtly acting than loving is. But serving the Lord issues from a heart that is totally devoted and totally committed to God. So if you love God, you'll serve God. And Jesus said that. The one who follows me, Jesus said in John's gospel, the one who follows me is the one who what? Serves me. That's right. This is the part of our faith that gives back. This is the part of our faith that honors God with practical expressions of love, love with legs. That's what serving is, both for God and for other people. And then finally, and in summary, what does the Lord require of you? Fear the Lord, love the Lord, serve the Lord, obey the Lord. That's really the bottom line here. Man, I'm telling you, one of the major themes of the book of Deuteronomy Again, Deuteronomy is a book comprised of three sermons of Moses, not exclusively, but mostly, three messages. And what above all things is Moses drilling down toward obedience, obedience, obedience. Why? Because the first generation is now dead in the desert. That desert, that Sinai desert is full of bones. Tens of thousands of them. And why? Why is the desert not only a vast wasteland, but a vast burial ground? Disobedience. Disobedience. And so Moses, man, Moses drills down heavy on this issue of obedience here. And it kind of serves as a summary to this question. What does the Lord require of you? Verse 12, walk in all his ways. Does that leave anything out? Does that leave any pet area in your life that you can say, well, I'm going to, listen, I'm going to walk in nine out of ten of God's ways. But I'm going to keep this other one over here for me. No, no, it says walk in what? All his ways. Verse 13, keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Before you can keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, you, you got to know them. That's why you got a book right here. Amen. So you got to be in the Word. You got to know what the Lord requires of you before you can do what the Lord requires of you. But you must do what the Lord requires of you. That's a New Testament emphasis. Be doers of the Word and not merely what? And not merely hearers only. So you got to know the commands of God and then you demonstrate that you are totally sold out to them. You have absolute allegiance to God's commandment by being doers of the Word not merely hearers only. Peter says that we've born, uh, been born again, to use his words, we've been born again for obedience unto Jesus Christ. That's why we've been saved. Saved for what? Saved for obedience unto Jesus Christ. Many people, why, why have you been saved? Well, I've been saved to go to heaven. No, you get that at no extra charge. Heaven is not the end all of your salvation. If it were, you wouldn't be here today. God would have just beamed you up, Scotty, right? Right up into his eternal presence. Why leave you here? Now, we are born again unto 
obedience, for obedience to Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 calls it the obedience of faith. True saving faith is always obedient faith, not just a head knowledge faith. It's a living faith reflected in the decisions we make and the lives that we live. Now, is everybody tracking with me? Amen. What does the Lord require of you? Fear the Lord, love the Lord, serve the Lord, obey the Lord. With all that in mind, Moses then in verse 16 of our text makes a very unusual commandment when he tells the people, therefore, right? There's a therefore there. You could have put the therefore at the beginning of the sentence, and some of your English translations probably do. With all that in mind, therefore, and again, when there's a therefore in the Bible, you got to know what the therefore is there for. With all that stuff we just talked about in mind, therefore, what does Moses say? What's the key verb here? Therefore, what? Circumcise. But circumcise what? Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Now, that's a faith decision. That's not a physical right. That's a faith decision. Now, we would expect Moses, who's equated with the law, to start talking about circumcision of the flesh. But he doesn't. Moses uses New Testament language in the bowels of the Old Testament when he started talking about a circumcised heart. This idea of heart circumcision is found in a handful of places in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. It's a concept of the Apostle Paul. But I think Paul gets it from Moses. And it's a very powerful concept. It's necessary for every believer. I preached a sermon many years ago that I entitled, Must a Believer Be Circumcised? And the answer to the question is an unequivocal, yeah, yes, just not in the way you're probably thinking. Every Christian is required to be circumcised because heart circumcision, the only, the only thing in the world heart circumcision is, is a synonym for salvation. To be circumcised of the heart means to be born again. Everybody heard me say amen. Because it's a work of Christ. It's what God does too. You can't circumcise. Listen, you can go to another human being and get your flesh circumcised. I'll leave that decision to you. But you can't circumcise your own heart and no other human being can either. That's something only God can do. And it's exactly what Moses tells the people of God to make sure they have done. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your own heart. That's his way of telling the people, in other words, make sure that you're living in such a way that it's obvious that you're different from these pagan neighbors. Listen, it's one thing to circumcise your foreskin, which I'll get to in a minute, which was a requirement. But ain't nobody gonna be able to see that. That's going to be covered up. You're going to know it. And you're doing it as an act of obedience. But nobody's going to be able to see that. But I'll tell you what they can see. They can see the results of a circumcised heart. And how do you know you've had a circumcised heart? You fear God, love God, serve God, obey God. Those are the marks of a heart that's genuinely been circumcised by the Spirit of God. 
Let me just say a brief word about the rite of circumcision because it's interesting that Moses is not talking about that here. He's assuming that uh, as an act of obedience for all those Hebrew male boys. When we first encounter circumcision in the Bible, it's a physical thing. God calls Abraham to be the father of this great nation, holy, belonging to God. He's going to call him Israel. And he declares to Abraham, I want a mark on my people that separates them, that identifies them as unique among all the other peoples of the earth, holy, belonging to me. And that sign was, of course, the sign of circumcision, which was a literal cutting of the flesh. Genesis 17 and 10, for example. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. And then later on, of course, this gets encoded into the law of God, <clears throat> which you can read later in the Bible. Every male child was to be marked by physical circumcision, which took place how long after they were born? Anybody know? Eight days. That's right. Very good. But then Paul comes along in the New Testament, and he kind of puts a Holy Spirit twist on the right of circumcision. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one where? Inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the what? A matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. That's heart circumcision. Now, what's Paul saying there? He's saying that circumcision is absolutely still a necessary right for the people of God, but it's not the circumcision of the flesh that's important. It's a circumcision of the heart, which, not so coincidentally, is exactly what Moses is emphasizing here in Deuteronomy 10, what matters most? What does the Lord require of his people? A radically changed heart. That's what God requires of his people. And that cannot happen through the skills of another human being performing some right upon you. That can only happen as a matter of faith and through the working of the power of the Spirit of God. And once again, my brothers and sisters, how do you know that's happened? Well, you and I know it's happened the same way the people of God knew it's happened then. Say it together with me. We fear God, love God, serve God, and obey God. That's how you know you've had a radically changed heart. And that's what Paul was getting at, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when he says, therefore... If any man, any woman be in Christ, they are a what? New creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And no amount of physical cutting or marking can reflect that. We need a changed heart. Now, that's not to undermine the importance of physical circumcision for the Jew. 
Back then, that was a critically important requirement. And you'd gotten tossed out of the camp if you would have been obstinate and refused to have taken the mark of circumcision to demonstrate that you were part of the covenant community of faith. God still required that uh, for his Old Testament covenant uh, people as an important sign that they belonged to God. And they took the commands of God very seriously. But what matters more than a physical cutting is a heart cutting. Something you nor other human being can do, something that only God can do. To put it in Jesus' terms, you must be born again. Everybody tracking with me, say amen. Now, up to this point, it's the introduction of my message. Somebody say amen. That's why. <laughs> On a short preaching Sunday, right? Here's probably what you're thinking. What's that got to do with baptism? Has everything to do with baptism. It gets right to the point of what believers' baptism is all about because the point between baptism and circumcision in terms of a mark of the people of God is not identical. There are some nuanced differences, but pretty much exactly the same. What the Old Testament sign of circumcision was to Israel ethnically, the New Testament sign of baptism is for believers spiritually. Does that make sense? It's a mark. It's an outward sign that something is different with you and something is different about you. Baptism, like circumcision, is a sign of belonging. It's a mark of identity, demonstrating that we've been saved by Christ, changed by Christ. Our hearts were uncircumcised, but then we responded to the message of the gospel. And as Christ in his Holy Spirit moved into our lives, we call that the baptism of the Spirit. Christ immerses us in, with, and by his Spirit. He indwells us. He takes possession of us. The first thing he does is cut us on the heart. He gives us a brand new heart. And baptism is an open demonstration of the cutting of the heart. It's an open public demonstration of what's happened on the inside of us. And it's interesting that here in Deuteronomy 10, Moses is trying to make sure that the people of Israel understand that it really is what happens on the inside that matters. You boys can be running around with circumcised flesh but if you're not living with a circumcised heart, you, like the first generation, like your fathers, will fall under the judgment of God. And you'll fall under his judgment having been circumcised. So what's most important, therefore, is to circumcise your heart. Make sure your heart is right with God. And that's why it's important to remember that with respect to baptism, baptism can't save you. Any more than circumcision could have saved a Jew. That wasn't, a, that wasn't something that they performed in order to be saved. If, that, if circumcision could have saved a Jew back then, then we all still just need to get circumcised today. If it worked then, it 
It should work today, right? Am I off base? Couldn't save them. It was a sign. It was a mark of their identity. But what mattered more than that was what had happened in their heart. Same is true with baptism. Listen, you walk an aisle today, some will. You can walk an aisle today, <clears throat> get up there in the water, be baptized, having done it because you think, okay, I'm going to check this off the list of to-dos. Therefore, by being baptized, I'll be made right with God. And truth be told, you really would not have been baptized. You'd just taken a bath on Sunday morning. Because there's nothing magic about the water. Baptism never saved anybody. Baptism never changed anybody. It makes you feel great when you do it. But it makes you feel great because of what God has already done. And all you're doing is publicly testifying without fear. Taking a courageous, bold step. And I'm telling you, when you do something courageous, you know, you may not want to do it. Because there's a little bit of fear in you, but boy, when you do it, you could kick in a double door. Man, I did it. Boom. You know, and that surge of spiritual adrenaline goes right through you. But it wasn't the baptism. It's the power of the Spirit of God that changed your life. You're just giving testimony to it, saying, I'm not ashamed. I'll take the mark. I'll take the cut. I'll take the sign. Because Christ has changed my life. Baptism's important. It doesn't save you, but it's command of Christ. Last thing Jesus said before he was ascended into heaven had something to do with baptism. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Then what does he say to do next? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. So just as circumcision was a command for the people of God under the old covenant, baptism is a command under the new covenant. And not to be baptized is to disobey the very command of Christ, which demonstrates that you have a very weak fear of God and a very weak love of God. Because what does the Lord require of you? Fear God, love God, serve God, obey God. And the first commandment that Christ gives upon salvation, the very first one, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ under the forgiveness of sin. And so it's a very important thing that we do. Christ was baptized. We follow his leadership and then you open the Bible to the book of Acts and you've got one running illustration after another of people hearing the gospel, being saved, and then responding quick and being baptized without delay if there was water available. Baptism's important for what it communicates. Christ has changed my heart. He's changed my life. Also, it's important for what it symbolizes publicly. The water, of course, symbolizes purity and cleansing from sin, which is something only Christ can do. Baptism symbolizes your union with Christ. That's part of what immersion means. You go all the way. That's your way of saying, I'm all in. I go all the way. We Listen, we're Baptists. We take you all the way under the water. We hold you under till you bubble. Amen. 
Why? Because I'm one with Christ. It's a picture of my unity with Christ. Christ in me, I in him. And immersion helps us to picture that. It also pictures a burial. Because before you can have new life, part of you has to die first. The old sinful self, Paul says, dead and buried. Therefore, put off the old man. And that's what going under the water symbolizes. I've identified with the death and the burial of Christ. My old life is dead and buried. It's gone. I'm a new person, a new creation in Jesus Christ, which is what's pictured when we come up out of the water. Now I'm identifying with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the whole work of Christ, the gospel is pictured in baptism, death, burial, and resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and my identification as a follower of Christ with his death, burial, and resurrection. My old life has died and has been buried forever with him. Now I've been raised to walk in a brand new way of life. Baptism is your wedding ring. It's an outward symbol of that commitment that you've made to Christ. But more importantly, it's the outward symbol of what Christ has done for you. The ring doesn't marry you to another person. You don't even have to have a ring to be married. The ring is a what? The ring is a symbol. But the ring is important for what it communicates. It's important for what it demonstrates. Can you imagine how offended my precious wife over here would be if I took this thing off and just threw it out there and said, I don't need that. She'd pick up an ax handle and wear me out with it if I did something like that. Because I'd be making a statement about her by refusing to wear the ring that she gave to me and the other way around as true. Doesn't marry us. We don't have to have it in order to be married. But it'd be a tragedy if we refused to wear it, if we refused to publicly testify that we are one in one another. Now, why do we take a day out of the year every year and emphasize baptism? Well, for those reasons, because it's that important. You don't dilly-dally. You aren't wishy-washy, shouldn't be, when it comes to baptism. That would have been unconscionable in the early church that we read about in Acts and following. The biblical pattern is very clear. Repent of your sin, trust in Jesus, and then testify publicly that you're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ and do it by baptism as a public testimony. And now, what does the Lord require of you. Same thing he always has of his people. Say it together with me. Fear God, love God, serve God. Oh, you got that good. And with respect to that last one, obedience, it begins with taking the mark of salvation and wearing it publicly for everybody to see. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen. amen.